Welcome to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn, your Sunday afternoon news hour. My name is Jasmine, and I'm here again with my good friend Janet. We're recording this on Saturday, February the 11th, and you're listening for the first time on Sunday, February the 12th. Uh, And today, February the 11th, is D'Angelo's 49th birthday, and that's who you heard at the top of the hour. That was his song, Devil's Pie. So, Janet, how's it going? Um, I've been doing pretty well. How about you? I'm good. I'm, I can't complain, like I usually say. Looking forward to being able to do more outdoor walking for fun soon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And aren't you doing like a lot of intense exercising? I am. <laughs> I'm on my way to becoming a yoga instructor. So there's been some meditation, some readings, and lots of practice, hopefully to bring me calmer into this year. (laughs) Okay, so on this week's episode for The Local Story, we'll be discussing uh, the end of the mass mandate for New York State hospitals and other medical facilities. For national news, we'll be talking about this weird Chinese weather balloon, air balloon that was shot down. For the world news story, we'll be discussing, oh, Dre, talking about the bird flu outbreak that's happening globally right now. And in good news, we have some interesting facts about cockatoos. So I'll start us off with our local news story. Uh, This comes from Politico. It was written by Maya Kaufman. Uh, I'm reading most of this straight through, but it's been cut somewhat for the sake of time. The title of the article is New York to Drop Masking Requirements in Hospitals and Healthcare Facilities. State officials will allow masking requirements in healthcare facilities to lapse on February 12th, signaling an end to one of New York's last remaining COVID-era requirements. The requirement had applied to staff, patients, and visitors in hospitals and healthcare settings, regardless of vaccination status. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention loosened its masking requirements for healthcare settings in September, but New York continued to renew its statewide mandate. Acting Health Commissioner Dr. James V. McDonald said the department's decision to not request a renewal of the emergency regulation reflects a quote-unquote period of transition in the pandemic thanks to decreasing levels of COVID-19 infections and hospitalizations. It allows, us to sh- it allows us to shift from blanket mandates to an approach in which we provide people with the information and tools they need to protect themselves, McDonald said Thursday during a state public health and health planning council meeting. We've given healthcare facilities and the general public the information they need to protect themselves. However, individual hospitals and facilities could enact their own masking rules. McDonald said the health department will advise facilities to follow CDC guidance and come up with their own plans for when they will require personnel to wear face coverings based on community case levels, 
not on vaccination status. Brian Conway, a spokesperson for the Greater New York Hospital Association, said its member hospitals and health systems do not oppose the mandate expiring. They're well prepared to use their vast internal expertise and experience to make masking decisions that are in the best interest of their patients and staff, he said in a statement. A health department spokesperson didn't immediately respond to a request for comment. Um, and this is just a brief note uh, from the New York Times. This is more New York City specific um, because this is um, the news story in general is about the New York State mandate of New York City's public hospital system will continue to require that masks be worn in its facilities, an official said in a statement. Um, so yeah, I mean, this was very much like last minute news. Like it was a shock that it happened and it was in a matter of like three days. Uh, so the day you're listening to this now, like they're letting the mandate expire on Sunday, February the 12th. Um, so there was not very much time for like advocates to try to scramble and like come up with something um, or to come up with some like drum up opposition to this happening. It just kind of, you know, took place yeah. suddenly. No, it feels like it was kind of like no one's paying attention and they just kind of quietly took it away with. I don't know, not a lot of eyes on on the CDC at this point. Um, but as we've addressed in our show, you know, there's a lot of people that their lives are hindered because of the lack of mandates on pub in public spaces. So for them, I'm sure this was or for them, for all of us, it's kind of shocking. It's shocking. And like, as someone who sat and watched this meeting unfold, it's just, it, it can be so frustrating because you'll hear people talking, people with these big names and titles, and it's just complete nonsense, the stuff that they're saying. Like he, he was like, I have my mask in my pocket. Like the acting commissioner, uh, James McDonald was like, this COVID is a preventable and treatable disease. Like we have the tools to prevent and to treat it. We have the tools like masking and things like this. And it's like all of the stuff you're saying goes against removing a mass mandate in healthcare settings because yeah. what's the main way that you prevent getting infected? And, and that just seems like, um, you know, if we're going to, keep it only in certain places the very first one you would think to keep it is a hospital or a medical setting yeah and, i mean even if it's just a matter of now we recognize that it helps to prevent the spread of colds you know you go to the doctor's office sick that's usually a, a circumstance why you might be exactly. there you're among vulnerable people and so it just seems natural that the staff and the and the patients would follow through with this practice, not just for COVID, but for all sorts of situations. Um, that's, that's very strange. I it's, did um, talk to strange. my, yeah. Uh, I did talk to my mom who is a nurse in the vet veterans affairs center. And she did say that they're still requiring masks, um, both for staff and patients. Um, and that setting does have a lot of older 
individuals. So at least that's good. But to have the guidance uh, taken away to encourage that is really disappointing. It is. And like also in that meeting, there was a doctor. I was shocked, but it was a doctor and he works at NYU Langone and specializes in infectious diseases, Gary Colcutt. And he was saying like, oh, like, I think that this will be met with a lot of satisfaction. And I'm like, what in the hell are you talking about? It's like, if you, like, you have no control sometimes in what hospital you end up going to or like where it takes your insurance or where your doctor might go. So if you're someone who is particularly susceptible to these types of viruses, this puts you completely like at the mercy of people who what just feel like kind of annoyed at having to wear a mask. Like it doesn't make any sense because, you know, like you mentioned about public spaces, it's like of all the places where you would think just pre COVID where you should have just a general rule of extra precaution, it would be these types of places. And like all day yesterday, it's like I was watching like videos of and reading articles of responses to this. I watched a video of like these doctors in Rochester at a hospital, like at a press conference. And they were also kind of like doing this weird double speak thing about caring very much about their patients. They have a lot of patients that are like not only elderly, but they have complex medical conditions, like where they're very, they're sort of like, I guess you could say medically fragile and how they got a lot of calls from people that were now afraid because they're going to be faced with the prospect or they're worried about when I go see my doctor, there's going to be people all around me who are not masking. And, you know, these are people where the only place they may ever go is to the doctor because they have to. And now that's not even certain that that's going to be safe. It's really wild times. Yeah, it's very peculiar. And I just won't understand why medical staff themselves wouldn't want to encourage the safety in the spaces that they work. Yeah, I mean, also for themselves, you know, not only just for the patients, it's like, do you want to be breathing in? Yep, you treat all these different people and urgent care facilities and doctor's offices coming into you with sicknesses and and you don't want to wear a mask or, or have the patient wear a mask. It's very strange. It's weird. It's it's reminding me of that um the doctor who discovered that doctors were delivering babies right after touching cadavers and then the women and the babies were dying. So he was like, We need to wash our hands. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Ignace Semmelweiss was right. his name. And that I'm like, once I knew that man's full story, I'm like, nothing could surprise me because he had the evidence that look, I don't he didn't know about germs. But he figured it out that, you know, there's something that we cannot see that is causing us to cause these deaths and this unnecessary sickness. Let's do this simple thing to stop it. He proved that it worked. Everyone could see that it worked, but they were just so angry at having to do it that they ended up like getting him committed and he was beaten to death eventually. 
because yeah. they just didn't, they were like, no, I just don't want to do this. I shouldn't have to do it. I'm XYZ type of person. I'm a gentleman. I don't have to wash my hands. Yeah, the the hubris sometimes really comes out. <laughs> they think they know everything and hindsight will prove what what this leads to and they'll maybe feel foolish, but or maybe the future generations will look back shaking their heads just as we do in that in that story. Well, you can get ahead and shake your head with me now. <laughs> um, there's also, uh, I know I've mentioned this group before, Mandate Mask NY. That's M-A-N-D-A-T-E-M-A-S-K-S-N-Y dot O-R-G. If you go to that link, there's several petitions going to have this reinstated to have the mass mandate in healthcare settings reinstated, um, encouraging people to call the governor. I've called the governor, you know, call the health commissioner, send them emails, contact your local reps, um, because a lot of these things happen, you know, when it seems like nobody cares and it can make a difference if you have enough people being loud about it. So, you know, if this is something that's important to you, I would encourage you to, you know, use your voice, speak up, because you know, like Nathaniel, like our guest that we had on a few weeks ago said, people shouldn't be getting sick in doctor's offices. That's absolutely ridiculous. Mandatemass.org, and please pay attention uh, as this story develops. Uh, so for our first musical break, this is Don't Wish Me Well by Solange. You're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. We'll be right back. education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now here's Janet with our national news story. So the article that I'm going to be reading from is on the NPR.org website. 
and it's called What We Know So Far About the Suspected Chinese Spy Balloon and FBI Probe. This article was published on February 9th of this year, and it was a collaborative effort between John Rutwich, Ryan Lucas, and Michelle Kellerman. And I'll make a note that there's active developments in this story. Um, we're recording this on February 11th, and just recently there was posted an article that yet another balloon has been, or something in the sky, not confirmed, has been shot down um, in Canada. So here's what we knew this week. As U.S. Navy crews continue to fish parts of the alleged Chinese spy balloon out of the Atlantic, a senior State Department official who spoke on condition of anonymity gave reporters an update on Thursday on some of what has been learned so far. Here's what the official had to say. China has sent surveillance balloons over more than 40 countries across five continents, and the Biden administration is in touch with other countries about the scope of the program. High-resolution imagery from the U-2 flybys showed that the balloon was capable of conducting signals intelligence collection operations, and that its equipment was inconsistent with that of weather balloons. The balloons are part of what the official called a fleet of balloons developed to conduct surveillance, and flights are often undertaken at the direction of the Chinese military. The U.S. has identified what it believes to be the manufacturer of the balloons and says it's a, quote, approved vendor of the China's People's Liberation Army, PLA. The U.S. will look into taking action against entities linked to the PLA that supported the balloon's incursion into the U.S. airspace. The FBI is involved. The FBI is also involved in the recovery effort. Bureau personnel have begun processing and analyzing an extremely limited amount of evidence recovered from the Chinese balloon, two senior FBI officials said Thursday. The officials who spoke to reporters on the condition of anonymity said the U.S. has only collected materials that were on the ocean surface so far, including the balloon canopy, some wiring, and a very small amount of electronics. The main electronics payload, however, has not yet been recovered, one of the FBI officials said, adding that it was very early to assess what the intent was and how the device was operating. The first bits of evidence recovered from the scene were transported to FBI facilities at Quantico late Monday evening, the officials said. On Thursday, a Chinese foreign ministry spokeswoman, Mao Ning, repeated Beijing's assertion that the balloon was an, quote, unmanned Chinese civilian airship, that it strayed into U.S. airspace by accident and that shooting it out of the sky was an overreaction on the part of the United States. That narrative is probably part of the information and public opinion warfare the U.S. has waged on China, Mao added. As to who is the world's number one country of spying, eavesdropping, and surveillance, that is plainly visible to the international community. She declined to comment on the equipment on board the balloon and the entities that own the balloon. 
Chinese statements have implied that the balloon was not operated by a government entity, but instead was linked to one or more companies. It has not named them. What do we know about Chinese balloon capabilities? Open source information from China suggests its military-linked balloon program is robust. State media reports reviewed by NPR show some of China's balloons are part of the country's hypersonic weapons program and are used to measure wind and other meteorological conditions for the missiles. Others may be used for ground surveillance. Academic papers describe how to attach radar systems onto the balloons to map targets on Earth. And the government is investing in improvements, too. In 2018, for example, China launched a project to research materials that can be used to make balloons that can float higher without losing buoyancy. So that's just a little bit of information covering what's still developing as a story. Um, But it is a little bit hard to interpret at this time, but it does seem wearisome. Um, And... I also read that Antony Blinken, who was slated to visit on a uh, visit China this week as a diplomat, um, has canceled that meeting. So there's some tension that's certainly rising on account of this of this incident. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. Like I thought it was very weird, and it seemed like it just seemed like such a strange thing to use like like when i think of a balloon it's like some big awkward clearly people would see it yeah exactly how would you it's like i kind of imagine what do you call those things where a hot air balloon i know (laughs) it's a little white balloon with googly eyes (laughs) but (laughs) but i did see kind of a chart that showed that these balloons are really high up and they're even above like all of our fighter pilot um, airplane positions. So it's like way up in the ether. Um, so maybe that's why they weren't noted. Um, but as this story develops, it gets stranger and stranger because it's like they, they've been sending apparently like all these balloons all over the world. They're looking over Latin America. They're looking over Africa. They're looking, you know, so it's like um just a little unnerving and obviously um america i'm sure as as the um chinese diplomat kind of pushed back we've been doing spying for many years and i don't know what that entails personally but um it's a little unnerving to have them doing it to us as well And I think it's going to be a story that we have to kind of keep following to see how this plays out, just based on the bigger tensions that's been developing between the U.S. and China economically, but also politically. Um, Obviously, everyone since the war broke out um, between Russia and Ukraine, with Russia exerting kind of military imperialism or warlike intentions everyone's eyes turned to China to see whether they would follow suit and put more tension in Taiwan. Um, I remember Nancy Pelosi's visit to China was kind of a stressful time as well. So I think it's just something we have to keep our eyes on. And 
having never experienced a direct conflict with between the U.S. in our lifetime, it's just, I don't know how these things, what's the tipping point or, or what causes actual engagement to take place. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. It's like we were laughing earlier, but it's like at some point, there's just so many things that are looming large, like a big white balloon. Yeah, exactly. I heard the first of the story. I was thinking of the 99 loof balloons, like, yeah, that set off some kind of a nuclear war. And there's so many songs from that era that were about like making references to nuclear war because it, you know, there was such a huge threat. And it does feel like we're in that same space now of things, you know, rene- renewal of these cold war turning into a hot war exactly issues and it is scary it's like as much as i do you know anyone who listens to this show knows like i'm very quick to point out like what the u.s government does domestically and abroad um but you know countries and their governments are not like the day-to-day people that would end up being like obliterated like when things do really go off the rails, you know, like when you do start having missiles and people being targeted, you know, it's either whatever borders you're in, like there's a lot of innocent victims. So it's definitely scary. Yeah. And scary to know, um, you you know, we don't necessarily know what our own intelligence is doing to counteract this. Uh, Some of the articles I've been reading on this topic suggested that several balloons were also flying over the United States during Trump's era. And, you know, the public didn't know about it. It's not necessarily clear if Trump knew about it. (laughs) But, you know, if they're scoping us out in this way, you know, that's, it's it's just, what is there? It's hard to read what their intentions are. Um, I don't, I don't have enough wisdom in, in the politics of this all to see what's coming next, but I'm certainly on alert. Yeah. Did you see anything that made references to like what the next step would be? Like once um, U.S. forces figure out exactly what all was in the balloon or like what could have been being collected, like then what? It's a it's a good question. Um, I don't know that we'll be. Well, I guess as this story has been developing, they have been having interviews with the FBI agents and people who are privy to this you know, sensitive material revealing certain parts of it. But I I don't know what our next course of action is. It does strike me that the U.S. shot down something over Alaska, and they're still not even sure if it was a balloon. And then the Canadians, again, shot down something they weren't sure what it was. So the fact that both countries are on alert and are kind of like anxious about what's in the sky and they determined that these whatever they saw did not have humans aboard before they shot it down, but they're still kind of just, it seems like both governments are on edge. So that's why I'm, I'm becoming on edge myself a little bit. Yeah. What was that? Um, I'm blanking on the name, but there was like that crisis that happened many years ago where it was just like a misunderstanding between the U S and Russia, where it was like, in 1983, it was the Soviet nuclear false alarm incident where Stanislav Petrov 
who was a colonel in the Soviet air defense forces, like he realized that, you know, they, they thought that the U.S. had attacked or like had set off a nuclear missile or something, but he realized it was a false alarm. So these things, when it's like, oh, this drifted into this or that airspace, it's like, it could be that it's some kind of a mistake or like it is, if there's no one on it, things like that could happen, but then that could also be an excuse. And it is like a way to find, you know, where would be a good place to drop a bomb or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like just these, like there's these tiny minorities of people that have all of our lives on a string basically and like based on who's in what kind of a mood that day right no because we don't we don't know really i feel like there are people in the united states agencies that have been following this for a long time this isn't really the first balloon but this is the first that's so open to the public so I, it's just a mysterious circumstance. And then, of course, we don't know what, what the Chinese government means by this or what their plans are. Um, but obviously other intentions of China have kind of been, you know, just worrisome for the world at large. Proverb, not proverbially, but um, historically, there's always accounts of how a big battle got started. And sometimes there's an accidental stray bullet or in one scenario I can think of there was a a horse that accidentally got released and started running towards the other side and it you know brought on the actual battle due to some error and you know I feel like that's kind of human nature where when you're stressed and and you're worried about the opposition and you're already kind of expecting something and then you know, something can trigger the beginning. And again, hopefully this is not what's happening here. Now we got COVID, we got the flu, we got balloons, <laughs> global warming, oh like, geez, what else? What else? Yeah. Humanity. Of all the things, and I'm like, didn't the Pentagon say they saw aliens for real? Like, wasn't that confirmed and everyone was like, you know what? There's so much shit happening. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's just too much. <laughs> yeah, like one of my friends was, I'll never forget. I couldn't believe she said it. My friend Laura was like, you know, if it is aliens, I kind of want to know what they have to say. I'm like, what? Are you kidding? <laughs> Absolutely not. I don't want, she's like, yeah, wouldn't you want to know? Like, no <laughs> i want them to go back we got enough problems without the alien invasion but what about the ai i mean that's been all over the news this week we're running it's like all the cautionary movies we saw in the 80s and 90s meant nothing <laughs> and now nothing these guys are- <laughs> we just had black mirror did you watch that show oh yeah Definitely. Oh, so we got the robot dogs. Like that that was the one yeah. episode that scared me the worst was the one with those those met it was called what was it called? Metalhead or something, where yeah. it was those, those robots that went haywire attacking people. We already they're got small, those. but they're like um, you know, you can't destroy them because they're so strong and metal and agile. And like we have robots like that now. <laughs> We've created them. And and it's like you know, the classic Jurassic Park line that's like, you were so eager to see if you could, 
you didn't stop to think whether you should. And, you know, AI is just so freaky and so dangerous. And I try to talk nice to all my electronic devices. (laughs) Just to make sure (laughs) that they know I'm I'm a good one. (laughs) Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I can't do that, Dave. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I only recently watched... 2001 a space odyssey i'm like man all this stuff is coming to light like they were trying to warn us and people like you know what that seems like a good i'm gonna go right ahead and make the unkillable machine you would think that the people capable of of you know inventing that kind of technology are also in the same category of people who love science fiction but perhaps not they probably love it, but they're like rooting for the damn villains. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. It's like I saw a news story recently again with the Black Mirror. There was that episode where like the bees, like those fake bees, were attacking people. There was a news story, but it's like, yes, yeah, scientists have come up with these tiny bee robots. I'm like, this is yes, exactly yeah. how it starts. It's like, we let's instead of being innovative and saving let's just make a fake bee that can be hacked yep yep (laughs) and i actually in in the work that i do i photographed a fake dragonfly and i that episode came right back to me when i saw it i was like oh my god this one's not real it's got little batteries (laughs) oh man how terrifying the balloons the bugs the robots Back to my yoga. <laughs> I know, home. yeah, I know. For our next musical break, uh, this is a song that is for someone who recently passed away. Uh, the legendary songwriter, producer, Burt Bacharach, died at the age of 94 on February the 8th. Uh, he was a longtime collaborator with the singer Dionne Warwick, and she tweeted the following when she found out he had passed. A Bert's transition is like losing a family member. These words I've been asked to write are being written with sadness over the loss of my dear friend and my musical partner. On the lighter side, we laughed a lot and had our run-ins, but always found a way to let each other know our family, like Roots, were the most important part of our relationship. My heartfelt condolences go out to his family, letting them know he is now peacefully resting, and I too will miss him. This is one of my favorite songs performed by Dionne Warwick and produced by the now late Burt Bacharach, the theme from the Valley of the Dolls. You're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. We'll be right back. Gotta get off, gonna get, had to get off from this road. Wait. 
You can follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account and we also have a Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at objection to the rule. Again, no spaces, no punctuation marks. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now for the world news story. Um, so I just, I wanted to say off the top, I know uh, sometimes we just, we can't get to everything on this show. So it's not like we're trying to ignore uh, some of the bigger stories that have happened. It's just, you know, there's so much in any given week, but um, we wanted to say, you know, we acknowledge what just happened and what's currently happening in Turkey and in Syria with the recent earthquakes and the incredible uh, loss of life. So, you know, please don't think we're ignoring that. Like, we'll definitely touch back on it on a later show uh, when more information comes out and hopefully, you know, more survivors are found and things like that. But uh, incredibly tragic events unfolding right now. We're thinking of all the citizens in both countries and the struggles that they're going through. And um, we have found there's a, a useful website that's called charitynavigator.org. And on this website, um, they have a particular section that, where you can find charities that have been reviewed um, that can donate to the cause in both countries. Um, giving both to the people, the search efforts, and the people who've been displaced and no longer have homes. Um, so we encourage you to take a look at that um, and contribute to the cause. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, very sad, like our thoughts and um, well wishes are with all of the survivors and people grieving right now. It's just, it's awful. Um, but for this week's world news story, I am going to read about the current um, uh, bird flu pandemic that's happening right now. Uh, this information is from Grist. The title is, As Climate Change Disrupts Ecosystems, A New Outbreak of Bird Flu Spreads to Mammals uh, by Zora Tierstein. Uh, and it was written on February the 10th. Public health experts around the world are sounding the alarm as cases of a virulent strain of avian influenza called H5N1 rise in mammals. Bird flu has infected humans in the past, mostly people who work directly with diseased poultry, but there has never been widespread human-to-human -human transmission of the virus. If there were, it would be a catastrophe. The original H5N1 mutation had a 50 to 60% mortality rate in humans. The latest outbreak of H5N1, which began in the U.S. in late 2021, has resulted in the culling of 58 million birds thus far and led to a marked increase in the cost of eggs and poultry at the supermarket. It's America's second major surge of H5N1 since the strain was first detected in southern China in the late 1990s. The first significant U.S. wave kicked off in 2014 and was contained mostly in the Midwest. Since 2021, H5N1 has been found in at least 47 states. It's circulating among wild birds, cropping up in wild man mammals, and crucially, bouncing between mink. 
That last development is what really has experts alarmed. More broadly, the H5N1 outbreak fits a pattern scientists have been ringing alarm bells about for years now. Climate change is throwing ecosystems out of whack and spurring the spread of disease, putting wildlife and human health at risk. Avian flu viruses are adapted to bind to birds' receptor cells. Humans and other mammals have some avian-like receptors, but they're typically buried deep in the lungs. Because of this anatomical quirk, it would take an enormous load of H5N1 for one infected mammal to dredge up enough of the virus to infect another mammal, unless, of course, the virus evolved to bind to mammalian cells in the upper respiratory tract. That's what appears to be happening now. Late last year, 50,000 mink on a mink farm in Spain were killed when lab, ve- when lab tests showed the animals had contracted H5N1. A study published last month said that the virus had been spreading between the mammals whose respiratory tracts have physiological similarities to humans. It's the first time such an outbreak has been documented. Uh, Recent isolated cases of H5N1 and various wild animal species are adding to experts' unease. The virus has cropped up in seals, sea lions, dolphins, grizzly bears, foxes, and ferrets, many of which probably got the virus from eating infected birds. Globally, there have been six human H5N1 infections, including one death. In this surge of the virus, none of which was caused by one human giving it to another but experts are keeping a close eye on H5N1 in case the virus continues to adapt to the point where it can easily infect humans and prompt person-to-person transmission. Um, So you can read more on GRIST is the name of the outlet. I didn't read the entire thing. It's quite lengthy and pretty detailed, um, but it's mostly focusing on how the way the planet is changing is in turn changing things where like certain birds that might not migrate at certain times or be in certain places are now in those places and that can affect like how diseases spread. Uh, We also have been seeing things where like bears and other wildlife appearing in certain areas that they wouldn't normally be in because they have to travel farther to try to find food. So that also brings with it the risk of, you know, whatever diseases they have spreading to new and unknown places. Um, And NBC News also had a write-up about this, um, how the avian flu is spreading to different mammals. Um, And what they mentioned in this article by Evan Bush is that the sheer amount of H5N1 circulating has heightened the risk the virus could spill over into other species, develop the ability to transmit among people and become a pandemic. Uh, Researchers are particularly concerned about this version of avian influenza because most humans haven't dealt with it before. Uh, One of the scientists quoted in the NBC article says, we don't have an immune response against H5. That's why the virus has pandemic potential. Um, And also mentioned in several articles is that while there is a vaccine that exists, like it does not exist in enough numbers uh, to be able to inoculate everyone, like if this were to become something that spreads quickly among people. 
Well, that's terrifying. It's like ring around the rosy. Here we go again. Oh, what a fitting uh, thing to say. Isn't that a plague song? Wasn't that ring around the rosy was about the bubonic plague? The Black Death. Yeah. Um, Got to get our pocket full of posies to counteract some of these <laughs> globalized diseases and their evolution. COVID might have just been our first taste of series of these illnesses that because of the nature of the global world and how people are traveling all the time, people live in dense cities, people, you know, have these complicated and unsustainable and messy ways of cultivating their food and their livestock. You know, we're just, we have a system that's set up for um, these diseases to really thrive upon us. So learning about the minks and the transmission to the mammals in that case is quite terrifying. It is, but I, I also feel like there's, I think some people are missing the point because a lot of um, people are so focused on the probability of it spreading to humans is low. And it's like, okay, let's say that that's true. Let's say it's almost impossible that it will spread to humans. I don't believe that. But even if it were true, like the fact that so many animals are dying is terrible in and of itself. Like seeing these pictures of you know, so many birds, you know, I was on my way to work the other day and I was looking at the pigeons and oh. I was like, oh man, like I'll miss y'all if, you know, I just started to yeah. notice a bunch of them were just dropping from the sky, you know, and people are describing like it being quiet in some areas or they're used to all these gulls and seabirds that they're just seeing them sick and dead. Oh, uh, that's awful. Yeah. With the uh, minks, you know, I think it was when they got COVID, they slaughtered. And these are yeah. that are being prepared for coats in the first place, which is horrible. But then they just slaughtered millions of minks because they got sick. And it just, you know, I'm not often, I don't know people who have fur coats or things these days, but it just struck me because I didn't, I guess I just didn't have it in my mind, present mind that, still we we grow these poor animals just to be turned into coats and i mean there's many levels to this that are upsetting like i know i talk about covid a lot and like y'all will just have to get used to it but <laughs> it's like you know people i think a lot of people have forgotten like why it's important to contain things and it's because viruses grow evolve and they learn and they become more fit so when something right. is growing and spreading from thing to thing to thing it's like gaining intelligence in a way it's not a sentient thing but its only purpose is to just move forward to the next host and it gets better and better at doing that so the fact that you're seeing, you know, not just the birds are dying, but there's also like sea animals, like they're sealed, like all like, like I've been seeing these pictures all week of these different types of mammals, like washing up dead. And they're yeah. finding out that they had, they were infected with the bird flu. It's like, do we know for sure that they ate a bird? Or is it that because it's just like the article was saying, the sheer number of cases is such that it's changing rapidly. Whereas if you can kind of keep it contained, it's limited in like how quick it can evolve. And then you can like, 
you have a better chance of figuring out what to do. But the more something spreads, it's like a rapidly moving target that's now outgrowing. It's it's outpacing your ability to deal with it because it's allowed it's being allowed to spread so much. And like what you're saying, like when you have factory farming, like that's you have these animals where like they're a perfect breeding ground for something like that because it's a bunch of them all in one place and something can just spread like wildfire because they're all being kind of bred for the same thing. There's not a whole lot of diversity within them to kind of like break up the ability of the thing to spread. So it just is like turning on a faucet and then. Yep. And the way we even consume these animals is often if you're eating a hamburger, you're not eating part of one cow. You might be eating part of a hundred cows that were grinded up together in the same machine. So, I mean, depending on whether intaking the animal is an issue, um, our method of harvesting food and meat is just, you know, makes us very vulnerable to these problems. And it's one of the many reasons that we should really step back and redesign our food supply in a totally right. different, you know, environmentally friendly, sustainable, you know, we, we just, we can't, we can't survive the, you know, the animals of the world, both the wildlife that we displace through our farming production, the, you know, horrible way of life for the animals that we eat. And then ourselves, like this system is hurting everyone that we have for food in the modern age. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's like when we talked about the batteries and stuff for electric cars last week, it's like it's not little tweaks aren't enough. Like there has to be a massive overhaul of these systems because we're running out of time to like the bill is coming due on you know all the things we're doing to the planet and it's just it's not going to get better until you know there's bigger changes um so on that note we're going to talk about some birds that are very much still alive alive and intelligent um we wanted to end on a positive note this week and recently there was uh, an article that describes a study that was published about cockatoos. And these are the, if you haven't watched the YouTube videos of these adorable birds, they're the fluffy white ones with the big eyes that look like they're always smiling. And basically the study showed that in addition to humans and chimpanzees, cockatoos are able to um, use forethought to gather tools for a specific task and then employ them in in very versatile ways. So the study has these little puzzle boxes where the cockatoo needs to use an implement to get to a cashew that he wants to eat or she wants to eat inside there. Um, But it wasn't just that they supplied the implement and the cockatoo could figure out how to use it. Um, Various Items were left around the room, and the cockatoos had to select items. They had to bring them over to the containers, and sometimes they might need to use a combination of two, um, and sometimes they might be um, moved to a different space so that they would have to kind of 
premeditate and select their tools and then bring them into the new space. So really exciting and just one of the many ways that we're finally kind of exploring what intelligence the animals that we live with have because there was such a long time period in zoology where we just assumed that we were the only intelligent creature. So we didn't even ask questions of what animals were capable of. And I saw a lecture um, by Jane Goodall um, way back in the day, and she was actually credited with being one of the first uh, anthropologists to describe how chimpanzees use tools. Um, living in the forests, um, she saw that they used these sticks to gather termites out of logs and that they sometimes would manipulate the sticks. And this was no small di discovery because humans at that point in anthropology had been defined as the animals that use tools. And so once she kind of opened the door to other animals and their intelligence, we had to rethink who we were and how we fit into this elaborate web of, of life. Very cool. It reminds me of... Um... Like I, most of the things I see with birds being intelligent has to do with like how smart crows are like and I've seen them like figuring out puzzles and they use tools and how they can remember faces for years like they remember people for a very long time. Yeah, and, you know, who's nice to them who gives them food like they'll hang around so yeah always yeah, you know, are super intelligent ravens. Um you know, they, they have memories. They like to have, there's obvious examples of birds ex, uh, experimenting, having fun. I remember seeing a, or a crow that was like sledding down the top of a rooftop. And, uh, you know, they're the parrots that have been studied and, and there's, they've studied not only like, you know, we think of parrots as just repeating what we say, but some of the cognition studies have shown that they're really forming complex meaning through human words so it, it there's a level of understanding that we didn't appreciate formally so all the more reason that we should be protecting um the spaces for these uh incredible creatures yeah for sure so yeah and i would i'd recommend listening to the what is it the moth it was a moth episode with I think her name is Irene Peppercorn, Alex and me about her study um, of the gray parrot. Like she had a gray parrot named Alex that she was very close to and she made a lot of breakthroughs. And it was a big uphill battle for her because she was in a field where it's like, everyone's like, ah, oh, birds, who cares about birds? Oh. Uh, but she talks about like her relationship with Alex, the parrot and you know what they learned from each other. So, all right. Good. Yeah, so we'll put a link up to that on our show page. Um, and thank you so much for listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Stay tuned for more local uh, community-based radio. And again, you're listening to this on, well, we're recording this on February the 11th, which is the 11th anniversary of the death of Whitney Houston. Uh, she unfortunately died way too young at the age of 48. Uh, so we're gonna play you out with one of her songs, I Believe in You and Me. Thanks everybody, have a good rest of your week. Bye. I believe in you.
Down, baby. 